0: This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival.
1: You all comfortable? You're not too dazzled by my coat? Okay, good to go. Right, well thanks for coming along uh, for this event today on Chasing the Scream. Uh, To introduce our guest... Johan Ari, a journalist who for the last couple of years has stomped the world, continent after continent, country after country, investigating an issue that's kind of plagued his mind over the years. He's written about it quite a lot, and it's the whole question of drugs policy, drug use, where is this going on a global basis, and what can be done? He's asked himself a lot of questions at the beginning of his book. It's a book, by the way, which is a... It's not a conventional drugs manifesto, if you're wondering. It's a book of stories. He tells tales, he tells human stories. It's a deeply compassionate book. Uh, It's a wonderfully written book, and these stories are important stories, really crucial stories for our time. So, anyway, let's give a big hand to the author of Chasing the Scream, (laughs) Joanne Harding. I was going to introduce you as an English writer, but...
0: (laughs) This is a sensitive subject, Kevin. You told me you're Scottish. My mum is in the audience, and um, I was born in in Glasgow, and uh, the only time... and when They moved to London, as you can tell from my voice, I didn't grow up there. Um, But when they were about one, they they moved to, to London, and the only thing I've ever written that my mum was really angry about was about... Well, it was 2004, I was in New York to cover the Republican National Convention, and for a play on the Sting song, I referred to myself as an Englishman in New York. And the next morning, my mum phoned me and said, no, son of mine is an Englishman. <coughs> so, have you forgotten what they did to Mel Gibson? And even now, when we have arguments, she go, oh, is that my English son? Is it? So, uh, yeah, you've got into a, a delicate topic there. OK, not SFA rules. Scottish. <laughs> OK,
1: go to your book. It's a book, as I said, that tells stories. It tells a lot of stories, but you humanise it. You don't start with a theory. You go into the tales of individuals and you start with an absolutely fascinating story of what you call the, the three founding figures of the global war on drugs, the characters who should be on the Mount Rushmore of drugs. And they weren't names that everybody would immediately spring to mind. Harry Anslinger, a very important figure, the singer Billie Holiday, and Albert Rothstein. Uh,
0: who are these, what is their backstory, how did it... F- just, just for answer that, I just <laughs> want to say that um, Kevin is one of the people in, in Scotland who's been doing the most amazing work for a really long time on this issue, and I'm really proud to be on the stage with you, done, know, you've been a, a lone voice of sanity on this issue in Scotland for a really long time, and I think you're being vindicated by a lot of the things that have happened, so I just want to am really pleased to be with you. Um, I opened the book in a place that might seem like a weird place to begin the story of the war on drugs. You might think, what's this got to do? why is he talking about this? In 1939, Billie Holiday stood on stage in a hotel in midtown Manhattan, and she sang a song called Strange Fruit, that I guess you guys, pretty much everyone here will know, is the song Against Lynching. And that night, she received a warning from the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, run by a man called Harry Anslinger, and it said, stop singing this song. And it seems like an odd place to start. What's that got to do with the war on drugs? What's what's any of this got to do with that? A few years before, a man called Harry Anslinger, who was a government bureaucrat, took over the Department of Prohibition, just as alcohol prohibition was ending. And he's got this big government department with nothing to do. And it's, you know, a huge budget, and it's going to be shut down. And in the years just after, he invents the modern war on drugs, partly because he sincerely believed in it, and partly to keep his department going. And he really built it. We tend to think, I've spent a load of time in his archives, and... We tend to think, if you think about why were drugs banned, right? You would think, well, for the reasons that we would give if we stop a random person in Charlotte Square, you know, you'd say, well, we don't want kids to use drugs. We don't want people to become addicted, both very good goals and absolutely right. Um, actually, what's fascinating is that stuff doesn't come up, barely, barely mentioned. The reason why they ban drugs, Anslinger builds it around two passions. One is a really deep hatred of African Americans and Chinese Americans. There's this belief that blacks and Chinese people are using drugs, forgetting their place and attacking white people. And the other is this deep hatred of addicts. He believes addicts, partly based on childhood experience, he believed that addicts were infectious, that we had to cage them, or they would infect the rest of us. He had this very deep fear of addiction, part- and actually later in his life became an opiate user, which I can talk about. And <laughs> a bit of a hint there. Um, and, and to him, Billie Holiday was the symbol of everything he hated, right? She's an addict, she had been raped as a child, she'd actually been prostituted as a child, and partly to deal with the trauma and grief that she felt, she developed first a big alcohol problem and then a heroin problem. Um, And of course, she was an African-American and she's standing up to white supremacy, right? And basically, Billie Holiday's response to what Anslinger says to her is, screw you, I'm an American citizen, I'm going to sing my song. And that's when he resolved to destroy her. And I think it's a story that tells you a lot about what the war on drugs was about at the start and is about now. So Billie Holiday, um, the first thing he does is he employs this guy called Jimmy Fletcher. who uh, He hated employing black people, uh, but you couldn't really send a white guy into Harlem to stalk Billie Holiday, right? It would be kind of obvious. Um, So he employs this African-American guy who follows Billie Holiday around for two years. And what happens is so heartbreaking. Billie Holiday was so amazing that Jimmy Fletcher fell in love with her and his whole life he felt ashamed of what he did next. She's busted, she's put on trial. She said the trial was called the United States versus Billie Holiday, and that's how it felt. She's sent to prison for 18 months. She's made to clean the pig styes. She doesn't sing a word in prison, but the cruelest thing is what happens next, and it's what we do today. She gets out, and she's not allowed to sing anywhere, to perform, or almost anywhere. To perform anywhere where alcohol was served, you needed a license called a cabaret performer's license, they wouldn't give it to her. Anslinger makes sure she doesn't get it. So they, her friend Yolanda Bavan, the amazing jazz singer, said to me, what is the cruelest thing you can do to a person? Is to take away the thing they love. Right? They take away singing from Billie Holiday. This, by the way, is what we do all over Britain, all over almost all of the world. We give addicts criminal records that make it extremely hard for them to ever get back into the legal economy again. And Billie Holiday relapses. Fairly predictably in that situation, how could she not, almost. When she's in her early 40s, she collapses in New York City, she's taken to a hospital and the hospital refuses to take her because she's an addict. So she's taken to another hospital. Eventually they take her in. I interviewed the last surviving person to be in that that room, a guy called Eugene Callender, you can hear the interview with him on the book's website. Uh, She said to one of her friends on the way in, they're going to kill me in there. Don't let them, they're going to kill me. She was convinced that Anslinger's men weren't finished with her and she was right. Even though she was diagnosed with liver cancer, they arrested her on her deathbed. They handcuffed her to her deathbed. They didn't let any of her friends in to see her. They took away her record player and her candies. And um, one of her friends, Maylee Dufty, uh, realized she would, she would have gone into heroin withdrawal. So she managed to insist that she was prescribed methadone. And Billie Holiday started to recover. And 10 days later, Anslinger's men cut off the methadone and she dies. One of her friends told the BBC she looked like she had been violently wrenched from life. And I think that tells us a lot about the drug war in terms of it was always about race, it was always about making addicts' lives worse and making it harder for them to turn their lives around. But also, it really helped me to know that. Because one of the reasons I wrote the book is that there were some people I loved who were very close to me who had addiction problems. And I think if we're honest, I know there's going to be lots of people in this room, in this situation. If you love someone who's an addict, you're angry a lot of the time. And I think one of the reasons why the drug war is such a charged debate, and the debate about addiction is such a charged debate, is because it runs through the hearts of all of us, right? It's not like there's one group over there, another group over here. And... There's a, we all have a Harry Anslinger in us that looks at addicts and thinks, I wish someone would just stop you. I wish someone would force you to stop doing this terrible thing. And one of the things that helped me, and it was something I learned about a lot from from getting to know the people who knew Billie Holiday, but also from some amazing other people I met and I write about, is to realize that addicts can be heroes. And what an amazing thing that, you know what, no matter what they did to Billie Holiday, all that, she never stopped singing that song. Right? She would go anywhere they'd have her. She would go to the Deep South, right, where it was really dangerous to be an African-American woman, and stand up and sing a song about lynching. She would have people throwing bottles at her. She sang her song. right? No, and she didn't stop being an addict. She never recovered in that sense. But she was an amazing person. And all over the world, while we're talking, people are listening to Billie Holiday and they're feeling stronger. And all over the world, people are still doing what Harry Anslinger told them to do, and they're getting weaker. And I think that's an incredible, in the end, who wins from that? I think Billy Holiday is the victor in that.
1: Really I mean, you, you've chosen these stories like Billy Holiday's because these are brave people. And people, many addicts, who are quite far down on the spiral of addiction, their lives are filled with bravery, but it's a different type of bravery from what we would understand as bravery. Their life is it's not an easy option. And do you feel that it's easier to dehumanize them and other them, but if you do the opposite, then you treat people as human beings, as equals, as not othered, then you're going to have a different stories coming into it. People are going to engage with these stories. This is your purpose in creating these stories or telling so, these tales?
0: I think you've put it really well. And there's a place, I think, where this played out that really affected me very deeply. And I'm really pleased it's one of the parts of the book that's gotten a lot of response. Um, in Vancouver, in the year 2000, there was a homeless street addict called Bud Osborne in a place called the Downtown East Side, which some of you might know, it's a really notorious part of Vancouver, has the highest concentration of addicts in North America, possibly the world. Mm-hmm. And um, Bud was watching his friends die all around him. They had this quite intense uh, drug war, and the cops were going after people very hard. And uh, addicts, because they didn't want the cops to catch them, would often hide to use their drugs. They'd hide behind dumpsters or in like crevices or whatever. And obviously, if you start to overdose and you're hiding, no-one can save you, you just die. And Bud thought, I can't just sit here and watch all my friends die, and then die myself, but equally I'm a homeless junkie, what can I do? And he had a really simple idea. Um, He got together a load of the addicts and he said, when we're not using, which is most of the time, obviously, even if you're a quite hardcore addict, why don't we just draw up a timetable, and we'll patrol the alleyways ourselves, no cops, no nurses, nothing, we'll look in like the places where people hide and if someone's overdosing we'll call an ambulance. And people were a bit skeptical because they thought, you know, what are we going to do? But they, they decided to give it a go. And within the next few months, um, there was a really significant fall in, in uh, deaths from overdose on the downtown east side, which was kind of great in itself. But it also meant the addicts started to think about themselves differently, right? They started to say, maybe we're not the pieces of shit that everyone says we are. Maybe we can do something. Maybe we've got agency. And they set up a group called VANDU, I always get the acronym wrong, Van- Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users. And they decided to do something very specific. Um, Bud had gone to the library and read that in Frankfurt in Germany they had safe injecting rooms for addicts where they can go and use their drugs legally and be monitored by, addict, by, by doctors. And the deaths from overdose had almost ended in, in Frankfurt as a result. And he thought, well, we've got to do that, right? But there'd been nothing like that in North America since Anslinger. But he thought, okay, well, well, we'll start here. And Vancouver at that time had a right-wing mayor called Philip Owen, who uh, was a rich businessman. If you basically, if you picture Mitt Romney, you've kind of got Philip Owen in your head, like a rich businessman who had no idea what people's lives were like. He said all the local addicts should be taken and detained at the local military base and never let out. Tells you where Philip Owen was coming from. And Bud and his friends decided that everywhere Philip Owen ever went in public, they were going to follow him with a coffin. And the coffin said, who will die next, Philip Owen, before you open a safe injecting room? And it went on for years, and at every public meeting, they stood up and they said, hey, Philip, do you remember the the last person who asked you who would die next before you open a safe injecting room? Well, she's dead now, because you haven't done it. And this went on for years, and people got a bit disheartened, because they thought, nothing's changing. And one day, to his eternal credit, Philip Owen said, who the fuck are these people? (laughs) And he went to the downtown east side, and he met loads of addicts and he sat with them and he heard their stories and he was totally blown away. He had no idea. He then went and met Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize winning economist who'd grown up under alcohol prohibition in Chicago and it explained to him how prohibition works. And Philip Owen came back and he held a press conference and he had uh, the chief of police, the coroner, and a representative of the addicts. He said, I'm never going to speak about addiction again without having an addict right here with me because they know better than any of us and we're going to open the first safe injecting room in North America, and things are going to change around here, just you wait and see. So they opened the first legal injecting room, and Philip Owen's right-wing party was so disgusted, they deselected him, and his political career ended. But Mm. the more left-wing party feel that a candidate was in favour of keeping it open, and it was kept open. And when I went to the downtown east side, it was 10 years since, um, since the room had opened, Deaths from overdose were down by 80%, 80%. And average life expectancy on the downtown east side had improved by 10 years. You speak to epidemiologists, they tell you, you don't get figures like that except when a war ends, which is what this was. And I went to see Philip Owen. Actually, we went to the downtown east side, and people kept interrupting us to thank him for what he'd done. And he said it was the proudest thing he'd ever done. And he would sacrifice his whole political career all over again. And Bud Osborne, the guy who started the uprising, I got to know him well, Uh, he died um, about nearly two years ago. Uh, He was only in his early 60s, but he'd been a homeless addict during uh, during a drug war. And it takes a toll on you. And when he died, they sealed off the streets of the downtown east side where he had lived as a homeless person. And they had this incredible memorial service for him. And there were thousands of people there. And there were loads of people in that crowd, who knew that they were alive because of what Bud had started. And I think this is a really important model for Scotland, but also for the one, for the I think it really goes to what you're saying. What the addicts of Vancouver did is they challenged their dehumanisation. They said, you know what, we're just people like you, right? We've got, they used to, used to turn up at all the meetings about the menace of the addicts, and they'd say, can I tell you a bit about my life? You know, and they'd talk about themselves. And what happened is these people who people, it's so tempting, it's very tempting, we all do it with some group of people, I do it with Tories, you know, we all do it with some group of people, you know, it's always tempting in life to say, these people doing this thing I don't like must not be people like me with feelings and emotions and dreams and hopes and people they love. Um, and and the, the addicts really challenge, it's one of the reasons you mentioned the book is written as stories and I think, it's a slightly pretentious way of saying it, but I think The the drug war can only continue because we've dehumanised the people at its heart, Mm. where they are drug users, drug addicts, drug dealers, cops, the people who live on the supply route countries. And I think, in a way, I don't want to argue with people about the drug war, I think it's pointless. What I wanted to do, I wanted to say, if you had met Bud Osborne, for example, or if you'd met Chino Hardin, the transgender crack dealer in Brownsville, Brooklyn I spent a lot of time with, or if you met Lee Maddox, the amazing cop in Baltimore who realised something about the drug war, or Marisela Escobedo, a woman in, in Mexico with an extraordinary story who I met—sorry, oh, whose descendants I met—you um, wouldn't say their lives didn't matter, and that we should pursue a policy that either makes their death more likely or means we don't give a shit whether they live or die. And I think that, to me, was the, the, the big challenge. And I think the, 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 I want to talk a bit about the the Scotland, right? Because I think. You know, Kevin I was going was to
1: get you to talk about yeah, it, don't
0: worry. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Kevin was telling me beforehand that you know, one in 100 people here in, in Scotland is addicted to opiates. You've got This is you know, one of the drugs capitals of, of the developed world. And I think Scotland is absolutely ripe for a movement like Van Doe or like a lot of the other movements that have been very successful across the world. Scottish people are good and decent and caring people who want to be on the side of the underdog. You know, um, the SNP's policies are currently quite bad. Um, you're clearly going to be independent at some point soon, um, I think, um, whether you like that or not. And I'm, uh, we can have that debate another time. I can, I'll Probably do some controversial, controversial subjects like <laughs> the drug war, but I'm not going to go the really controversial stuff. <laughs> um, the, the, um, you know, Scotland could be the absolute mm. font of alternative policies for doing this for the world, like Portugal was, a place I went to, which I'm sure we'll talk about. You know, and I think I'm. If there is a movement formed to do that, Scottish people are ripe for being persuaded. Do you think
1: Nicola Sturgeon should spend some time with Ruth Dreyfus? And I say Ruth Dreyfus was the very first female president of Switzerland. uh, And she was a drugs revolutionary. I mean, she transformed drugs policy in Switzerland against... And she got the whole Swiss people behind her through referendums... uh, I think 70% back to reforms. Tell us about Ruth Dreyfuss and whether Nicola Sturgeon should pay her a visit.
0: I love Ruth. She's an extreme one of the... I mean, there's so many amazing people that I got to know, but she's one of my favourites. Yeah, as you say, um, she's actually quite a lot like Nicola Sturgeon in a lot of ways. She's... Yeah, so she was the first um, female president of Switzerland, which is a big deal in a very... My dad's here and he's Swiss, and my dad knows very well that Switzerland is a very misogynistic country. Um, And and very right-wing in all sorts of ways. And, and, you know, um, Ruth led Switzerland to legalise heroin for addicts. Um, And she did it in this really interesting way, which is a bit at a right angle to what I've been saying, actually. Um, So, uh, she was the health minister initially when they had a huge AIDS problem, and uh, injecting drug use was a massive driver of it. And she introduced really sensible policies about needle exchange and really worked with particularly the sex workers and drug addicts of Switzerland. But she also uh, did this very smart thing, which I think is really important, which is... When she was making the case for legalising heroin for addicts, she, by the way, she actually lives opposite now a clinic that prescribes heroin for addicts. So I went to the clinic in Geneva, and I was trying to imagine, you know, David Cameron, when he leaves office, going and living opposite a, you know, heroin clinic. But the... Um, the, the and, and the way she persuaded Swiss people is really interesting and really important, and I think will be important for persuading people in Scotland and across the world, actually. What she said is, you hear the word legalising drugs, and you think that will produce anarchy. What we have now is anarchy. Unknown criminal gangs are selling unknown chemicals to unknown drug users all in the dark, filled with violence, chaos and disease. Legalization is a way of restoring order to our lovely clockwork cities, right? We take the addicts, we bring them into love, we by offering them heroin, we bring them into lovely clean clinics. We help them to turn their lives around. We bankrupt the violent criminal gangs. There are no heroin, de- there are no illegal heroin dealers in Switzerland now, um, and we get all the disease out of it, all the chaos out of it. It stops bothering you. And Switzerland, you know, I mean, bear in mind, women only got fully got the vote in Switzerland in like the 90s, right? This is not San Francisco, um, uh, and, and they voted twice in referenda by 70% to keep this program going once they'd seen it in practice because it worked so well. And it was kind of amazing going to these heroin prescribing clinics where. You go in, and basically the way it works is the addicts can set their own dose, which kind of surprised me, right? They won't give you a dose that would literally kill you, but other than that, they'll give you your dose, and you're given it for as long as you want. You can stay on that programme your whole life if you want to. And I was kind of surprised, but um, Rita Mangi, the psychiatrist who runs it, explained to me, as the people are given the heroin, the chaos of being a street user ends, right? You're not scrambling to get your money, Obviously, if you were a prostitute, you stopped prostituting yourself. Street prostitution literally ended. Um, You you stopped committing burglary. I think it was a 93% fall in burglary. There's figures in the book. Um, Extraordinary figures, massive fall in street crime. Um, uh, And what happens is that because they give them love and support and help them to turn their lives around, so they get them housing, they get them jobs, the vast majority of addicts um, choose to reduce their dose over time because they want to be present in their lives. If your life isn't if I was forced to prostitute myself, I doubt I get that many customers, but if I was forced to prostitute myself, you know, uh, and I was being beaten up the whole time and I was homeless, that's probably not going to be the week I give up heroin, right? Um, as people's lives got better, they wanted to be present in their lives more and they reduced their dose over time. And the vast majority of people just stopped. By the way, just one fact on that, do you know how many people have died of heroin overdoses in Switzerland in those clinics since they started this programme? None. Not a single one. Uh, Kevin was telling me before, you've got two people dying of drug-related causes every week in Scotland. Every that day. Is, oh, sorry, every day, it's I apologise. Almost every that, day. That is totally preventable. None of that has to happen. We can choose to end it tomorrow if mm-hmm. enough of us demand it.
1: You made an interesting analogy. I mean, it's quite flippant as well that if, if four or 500 people were dying every day working in the Scottish Parliament... After about maybe 10 deaths, you know, consecutive days, people would start saying, what the hell's going on here? You know, people are dying every single day and they come in the next day, there be another person dead in the Scottish Parliament. But it's not, it's invisible people. It's people, you don't see it on the news. It's no longer reported, it's no longer interesting. It's just a statistic that comes out every year. It's been dehumanised and made invisible. And, and it does, it frustrates me that it's not taken up as a big issue in Scotland. And I've tried to work it out. Cause I, as I said to you, I've, I campaigned for over 10 years on drug issues, wrote a book on it, uh, did everything I could. And I found myself totally isolated at the end of that and disheartened because the two groups of people we couldn't get to speak out where people were addicts who had experience of addiction and who were actual addicts, and also people who work with addicts. Because I felt there was a kind of... There may be people in here who work in a drugs field specifically with addicts, but they couldn't speak out about changing policy because they felt their funding was reliant on it. And if you speak out, <laughs> your funding can go. Uh, and that, I found that an insurmountable object. you were isolated. You just became this kind of nutty left-winger or a nutty right-winger or somebody, some libertarian. Uh, what in the drug laws change? I don't feel that's changed in Scotland. I feel it's actually got worse. Uh, I don't see anybody now. Can anybody remember the last time there was a big debate in the Scottish press on drug problems, and it's getting worse. The deaths are increasing every year. It's not happening. There's a, there's a culture of silence.
0: I think you're totally right. And actually, there's a guy here, Stuart Roger. If you could, Stuart, keep you up your hands, so he can come and talk to you if you're here. Yeah, just over there, if anyone wants to join the campaign about this, Stuart is Mm. doing some really important campaigning work on this. And please go and talk to him afterwards. I think you're totally right. I think it's a combination of things. Just about the thing about we don't even count these people's deaths. Mm. The story that... Probably one of the two stories that most... Was hardest to do in the book. I went to a prison in Arizona where they make women go out on chain gangs uh, wearing T-shirts saying I was a drug addict and made to dig graves while members of the public jeer at them. And I went out with these women... And before I went, I went and met this woman who campaigns on drug reform in, in Arizona called Donna Leone Hamm, She's an amazing woman. And I asked her my standard question, any journalist here, this is a question I always use, you always get something interesting. Tell me about something that surprised you in the time you've been doing this work, right? She went through this big, long list. And somewhere in the list, like quite a long way down, she said, yeah, there was the time they put that woman in a cage and cooked her, that was quite bad. Mm. And I said, and she carried on, and I said, sorry, Donna, could we go back, can we go back a second? Um, there was a woman called Marsha Powell who was a chronic crack and meth addict who kept being put in prison either for prostituting herself to get the drugs or for using the drugs themselves. And one day in Perryville Prison, she woke up and she was suicidal and the psychiatrist took her and put her in what was called a... Actually, sorry, the guards. Uh, this is a debated point. Someone took her and put her in a cage. It's, called, it's a holding cage. It's a bit like a checking-in cell in a British prison or a British police station. But obviously, because it's Arizona, this is the desert, right? And it's uncovered. And they left her there. And she begged for water, and she cried, and she shat herself, and eventually she collapsed. And by the time they called an ambulance, she had been cooked. No one was ever criminally punished for what happened to Marsha Powell. And I went and found out who she was, and I tell the story in the book. I found her former partner and found out some fascinating stuff about her, but to me, well, it's easy to look at that and feel superior, and clearly that's not happening in Scotland. But actually, mm. it's not so different. Who cares? Two people a day. Who's talking yeah. about it? You know, If we want to demonstrate our superiority to what they're doing in Arizona, we've got to choose, the Swedish Drug Users Union have a T-shirt that says, is your political ideology more important than our lives? That's a question we've got to be asking every day. Just to say about why more addicts don't come forward, I think it's really interesting. Mm. The most moving reaction I've had to my book is addicts saying, I had one person say to me, It's the first book I've read about this subject that didn't make me feel ashamed. And part of the work we have to do, and I know there's people in this room who do this work really well, is we have to say, you know, you you shouldn't feel ashamed if you've got an addiction problem. Um, You always think, looking at someone who's got an addiction problem and saying, well, I wouldn't do that, I would never do that to myself, it's like, it's like looking at someone who's been in a car crash and had to have their legs amputated, and saying, oh, you fool, you had your legs cut off. I would never do that. You think, well, yeah, but you weren't in a car crash. And addicts have been in car crashes of the soul. The, the stuff that most blew my mind in the research for the book was, you know, the evidence about what really causes addiction and how it's not what we think. And I'll just do it quickly, if, if that's all right. The, the, you know, if you had said to me four years ago what causes, say, heroin addiction... I would have looked at you like you were a little bit simple-minded. And I would have said, well, obvious, stupid question. Obviously, heroin causes heroin addiction. Um, we've been told the story for 100 years. It's become our common sense. It was certainly mine. We think that if the first, I do how many people were on this front row, 20 people, if you guys all used heroin together for a month, you'd all become heroin addicts because there are chemical hooks in the drug that our bodies would start to physically need. And at the end of it, you'd have this ravenous craving, and when the heroin was stopped, you would find it unbearable. And that's what addiction is. That." The first thing that led to me to the fact there's something not right about that story is when I went and interviewed this extraordinary Canadian doctor, Gabor Marte. He said to me, if you step out of talking to me and you get hit by a truck and you break your hip, you'll be taken to hospital and you'll be given loads of diamorphine, right? Diamorphine is heroin. It's just the medical name for heroin. It's much better heroin than you're going to get on the streets of Edinburgh because it's medically pure, right? Whereas what you get from a dealer is only going to be like, at best, 50% heroin and the rest is contaminants. Um, You'll be given that heroin for quite a long period of time. I don't know if anyone here has had a hip operation. I won't ask you to put up your hands. If you have, you've taken lots of heroin. Um, If what we think about addiction is right, the story we've all got in our heads is right, what should happen? Some of those people, a significant number, should leave hospital as heroin addicts. This has been studied really closely. It doesn't happen. You will have noticed your nan didn't become a junkie after a hip replacement operation, right? And when I was... um, When I was... When I learned that, I just thought, I don't understand this. This is so weird. I spoke to loads of people, and I still didn't understand it until I went to Vancouver and interviewed an amazing professor of psychology there called Bruce Alexander, who's a really great man. And and Bruce explained to me, the idea of addiction we've all got in our heads comes in part from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. And they're really easy, simple experiments. You can do them at home tonight if you feel a little bit sadistic. Um, Get a rat put it in a cage, give it two water bottles. One is just water, the other is water laced with heroin or cocaine. I'm reliably informed they're not hard to get in Edinburgh. Um, If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself quite quickly. So there you go, right? That's our story of addiction, it makes total sense. In the 70s, Bruce came along and said, hang on a minute, We're putting these rats in an empty cage, and they've got nothing to do except use these drugs. Let's try an experiment. So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is essentially heaven for rats, right? Anything a rat wants in life is there in Rat Park. They've got cheese, they've got coloured balls, they've got awesome tunnels. Crucially, they've got loads of friends, they can have loads of sex, and they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. But this is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they all try both the water bottles, they don't know what they are. The vast majority never touch the drug water again. They don't like it. Um, they almost never, no, none of them ever use it compulsively and none of them ever overdose. So you go from almost 100% of them liking it and being addicted to it so much they overdose to none of them when they have good social conditions. And there's loads of things that come out of that and loads of human examples. If anyone wants to ask me about them, I'm very happy to, to talk about it. But I think this forces us to kind of reappraise how we think about, addiction. There's a professor in Amsterdam called Peter Cohen who says, we shouldn't even call it addiction, we should call it bonding. Human beings have an innate need to bond and connect. And when we're happy and healthy we'll bond and connect with something, we'll bond and connect with the people around us, right? Um, But if you can't do that because you're traumatised, or isolated, or beaten down by life, you will bond and connect with something that gives you some sense of meaning and you will return to it obsessively. That might be pornography, that might be gambling, that might be heroin, it might be crystal meth, but you will bond with something because that is our nature Mm -hmm. and when you know that, suddenly the way we react to addicts is, you know, if addiction and isolation are the biggest drivers of, sorry, if, if isolation and pain are the biggest drivers of addiction, imposing more isolation and more pain on addicts, far from turning them around will make them worse right? Gabor Mate said to me, if you wanted to design a system that would make addiction worse, you would design the system that we have now. There's a place that did the opposite, and I'll uh, just do it very quickly. The, the, there's a place that acted on this evidence, that listened to this and tried something different. So in the year 2000, Portugal had the same rate of opium user, opiate user addicts as Scotland does today. It's a really big epidemic, 1 in 100, and 1% of the population. And every year they tried the American way more. They arrested and imprisoned more people. And every year the problem got worse. And one day, the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition got together and they said, we can't go on like this. <laughs> we can't have this many people being drug addicts and it's always getting worse. Let's set up a panel of scientists and doctors to look at the evidence and come back and we'll agree in advance that we'll do whatever they recommend. Uh, it would be like if Labour and the SNP and all the main parties in Scotland did that. So the panel was led by this great guy I got to know called Hua Gulau, who's a doctor. They went away they looked at the evidence, including the evidence about Rat Park and all the stuff I'm talking about. And they came back and they said, decriminalise all drugs, from cannabis to crack. But, and this is the crucial next step, take all the money we currently spend on making addicts' lives worse and spend it instead on turning their lives around. And it's not really what we think of as drug treatment in Scotland and the rest of Britain. They they, they do a bit of residential rehab, they do a bit of psychological support that does have some value. The biggest thing they did was the opposite of what we do. They set up a massive programme of job creation for addicts. Say you used to be a mechanic, they'll go to a garage and they'll say, if you employ this guy for a year, we'll pay half his wages. They set up a huge programme of microloans for addicts, so they could set up small businesses they ran together, things like removal firms. And I went went to Portugal, spent some time there, got to know the people involved, and, and saw what had happened. The results are now in. It'll be 15 years and a few months since all this began, this experiment. Injecting drug use is down by 50%, 5-0%. Overdose deaths are massively down. HIV transmission is massively down. Street crime is significantly down. One of the ways you know it works so well is that almost no one wants to go back, and they've got a really competitive political system. I went and interviewed Juan Figuera. He's the top drug cop in Portugal. And he led the opposition to the decriminalization he, at the time. He said what well, a lot of you guys, I'm sure, are totally reasonably thinking. Surely if we decriminalized all drugs, you'll have all sorts of terrible problems. And he said to me, everything I said would happen didn't happen. And everything the other side said would happen did. And he talked about how having seen this in practice, he felt really ashamed that he'd spent 20 years before the decriminalization, arresting and harassing drug users and drug addicts and you hoped the whole world would follow Portugal's example. And I think the thing that was most striking to me, which are lots of places where they've moved beyond the drug war in different ways. N- when people see and practice the alternatives, they realize that the things they're afraid of, which are perfectly rational and reasonable things to be afraid of, don't happen. And while there are still tragedies and there's no utopian answer and there's no silver bullet, things get an awful lot better for an awful lot of people. And um, I think that's a really important lesson for us as we go forward. Mm-hmm. I think I'll get some input.
1: <laughs> it must have stimulated a few ideas among your, some controversial thoughts, or maybe not. I'm not saying that drug policy is, um, is formulated through rationality and reason, because if it was, it would be completely different. Uh, and you were talking about evidential-based uh, policy. But... When they tried that, and I think it was the Labour government actually, they, they sacked Professor Nutt, who gave them the evidence saying, you're, 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 the way you're going about it's wrong. And when they gave them the evidence, they
0: sacked him. That's incredible. That's a, a bizarre story. That's a great quote from Harry Anslinger. Right at the start of the war on drugs, someone challenged a lot of the facts he was using. And he said, these were his exact words, I've made up my mind, don't try to confuse me with the facts. <laughs> and I think that should be like the epitaph for the whole war of drugs. And actually yeah. it's really worth reading, David Nutt, who's an amazing mm-hmm. person, obviously I'm sure you all know his story. Mm-hmm. It's really worth reading the, um, in his book, Hot Air, which is a really good book. He uh, gives the, the exact words, that he had a phone exchange with Jackie Smith, the home secretary mm-hmm. at the time when he was fired. And I, I'm going to remember it slightly wrong, but... Basically, the way it went is... So, if you remember, he was the chief government advisor on... Uh, scientific advisor on drugs. And he said... He made a factual statement, which is... Taking ecstasy is much less dangerous than horse riding. Which is just true. He also said a little bit provocatively... If, it was a drug, if horse riding was a drug called equisty... It would make a lot more sense to ban that. And, anyway, Jackie Smith phones him up and she says... You can't say that uh, taking ecstasy is safer than horse riding. And David said, why? And she said, because taking ecstasy is illegal and horse riding isn't. And David said, why is taking ecstasy illegal and horse riding isn't? And she said, because taking ecstasy is more dangerous. And it's like the perfect <laughs> illustration of the circular logic. Don't tell me the facts, I've made up my mind. Mm-hmm. Any questions on that? or any? We've got a roving mic here. Just stick
1: your hand up with you.
0: Hi. Hi
1: there. Um, not so much a question, it was just to highlight, because you were talking about how there's not, you know, in Scotland there's not much going on, Um, Currently, I'm doing a PhD in Scottish Drugs Policy. Oh, wow. And we've just started up, it's in this very small early stages, I think called the Scottish Drugs Policy Conversations, Mm -hmm. and the idea is just to get everyone talking about drugs policy in the lead-up to the 2016 Scottish um, elections. So I'd be interested to talk to your mate.
0: Stuart, yeah, Yeah. definitely.
1: And just to let everyone know, the other thing I wanted to ask is there's quite a lot of um, focus on the concept of addict. And my thing is, a lot of people take drugs, they take it recreationally, once or twice a year. Is that something you come across in
0: your book? Yeah, there's two things there. So, uh, you're totally right, we've talked about addicts, addicts are obviously the most vulnerable drug users, but actually, I'm going to ask a question, this is a really, I'm flagging up that it's going to be an unexpected answer by doing this, but, just want you to all think in your heads, if I asked you, what proportion of currently illegal drug use does no harm to anyone who uses it, right? So this is true for, you know, picture, you know, banned drug, someone uses it, what proportion of them don't get harmed in any way? Don't become addicted, don't have a health problem from it? The correct answer, not according to me or any of the drug reform groups, according to the main drug war body in the world, the UN Office of Drug Control, is 90%, 90%. The vast majority of people, even who use crack and crystal meth, don't become addicted, which is really... It's bad for you in other ways, don't get me wrong, um, but which is really surprising. Um, and I think we have to draw a big line, Portugal did this, between drug, use, drug users and drug addicts, right? So um, when we're talking about the 90% of drug users, what they need is health advice and a product that isn't going to kill them. And obviously, when the product is controlled by armed criminal gangs, we can't send health inspectors into the bowels of whichever person is smuggling your drug into the country. Obviously, when it's legal, you, you do inspect it, and it becomes radically safer in all sorts of ways, and we, there's lots of evidence for that. Um, so I would say you're to- that's a really important point. And, and in Portugal, they do this. So if the police don't go looking for drug users, but if they find them, say, if you get in a fight and they find drugs on you, you're given, like, the equivalent of a parking ticket, and you have to go, and you just do an interview with a social worker and a psychologist, and the purpose of it is to ascertain if you're a drug user or a drug addict. If you're a drug user, they give you a load of health advice and leaflets. If you're a drug addict, they can get you into, you know, into a programme that will turn your life around that day. And I think that distinction they've made in Portugal is really important. What drug users need is what alcohol users need, which is liberty, uh, the safest possible product, and lots of love and support for if they develop a problem. So that's very important. The other thing you said about Scotland, there's a whole dimension to the Scottish debate that I actually think should be at the forefront of the Scottish debate along with the deaths of addicts, which is, and I actually think is the biggest moral question about even bigger than what we do to addicts, and it's about, a third of the book is about this. When you ban drugs, they don't disappear. They're transferred from, armed, they're transferred from doctors and pharmacists who used to control them to armed criminal gangs, right? and they, they operate completely differently. The best way to explain, and I learned this partly from Chino Hardin, the transgender crack dealer who I wrote a lot about in the book, and from Rosalio Retta, who was the hitman for the deadliest Mexican drug cartel, who I also interviewed, um, who was a fascinating and dark and disturbing person. Um, the, um, and, and the best way to explain it is, if any of you, when you step out of here, decide you want to steal a bottle of vodka, right? Maybe I've depressed you so much. Um, you, You go into the shop, and if the people in that shop catch you, they'll just call the police. So that shop doesn't need to be intimidating, it doesn't need to be violent. They've got the law behind them to uphold their property rights. right? If, however, you decide you want to steal some cannabis or some smack at the end of this conversation, and you go to the people who sell them in this neighbourhood, and they catch you, obviously they can't call the police, right? The police would arrest them they're going to have to fight you. Now, you don't want to be having a fight every day when you're a drug dealer, so you have to establish a reputation for being so terrifying that no-one would be so foolish as to do that, right? The, um, and, of course, you establish your control of your patch from rival violent drug dealers who you're going to have to fight in order to get the control. This is a huge amount of violence. Uh, Charles Bowden, who was an American writer, said, the war on drugs creates a war for drugs. The war for drugs is playing out in Scotland the whole time, most of the stabbings that you're here reading about in Glasgow are war for drugs fighting and they end when it's legal. If you're puzzled by that, ask yourself, where are the violent alcohol dealers in Chicago, right? They, 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 there were lots of them when alcohol was prohibited, there are none now, they don't exist and that's not because alcohol has changed. It's because the system of regulating issues, there's this phrase that you'll hear in the news, drug-related violence, right? And when you hear that, what you picture is someone using drugs, losing it and attacking someone, right? That does happen sometimes, it's 7% of what's called drug-related violence, Was a very good study of this. All the rest, nothing to do with that, it's... Rival drug gangs killing each other. That's not drug-related. Al Capone wasn't getting drunk and killing people, right? Mm-hmm. He was fighting for control of a prohibited market. That violence ends, but by calling it drug-related violence, it seems to shore up the drug war. You think, ah, we've got all this drug-related violence. We need to crack down on drugs. In fact, it's the crackdown on drugs that's causing 93% of that mm-hmm. of that violence. And I think that's a really important thing to understand. It's a massive issue in Scotland. That's, I mean, I was thinking... I mean, I'm, I sometimes
1: pass myself off as a professional lether, but... Uh I'm from Thurzo. Thurzo's, you know, the place that most of my heart, that's where I was brought up, my dad, my brother, they all still live up there. Thurzo never had that kind of violence, terrorism, terror associated with drug policy, but you might have read it recently, in Scotland anyway, a couple of drug dealers set up business in Wick, which is along the road, and they got someone kidnapped and they were sending his body back to Scotland in bits, you know, a bit of an ear, a bit. the papers covered it at the time. And it was only the fact that the guy escaped, I think it was in Spain, he managed to get away. They chopped lots of them off and they were sending it back in envelopes. And they were infle- they were basically saying that this is what we do, we're in WIC, this is what we do. And I was up there recently and I was like trying to get some feedback on the drug... Uh, from various people up in Thurzo, what's actually happening here. And it's a horrific story. I couldn't believe what was happening in I This is not the county that I left all the years ago. It's still got people I know, but it's now, it now has drug terrorism, it has gangs, and it has organized violence and intimidation. Uh, and that's in a little town, less than 10,000 people. You know. And this is dotted all around the Highlands. It's not a city problem anymore. And anyone who thinks it's a city problem in Scotland is, is delusional. It's gone to everywhere in Scotland, you know, you can, you'll get similar scenarios in Sky, and Lyric, everywhere you go, you know, and this is the terror that begats terror and it, more terror. And they, nobody's going to mess with these two guys, you know, and if you buy, you're going to pay your debts or else, you know, that's what they send the signal out. But we're not dealing with that. We're just not dealing with it in Scotland. I'll tell you, sorry, can I get another question here and then... Yeah.
0: Hi. We may argue about this, but, but I don't think hmm. politicians or most politicians are fundamentally stupid. So. Um, is, do you think policy is being dictated by the Daily Mail and... Sorry, said that? Do you think policy is being dictated by the Daily Mail and Rupert Murdoch? No, I don't, actually. I mean, yes, all the time, but... Uh, <laughs> 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 so, um, I think it's an important question. The, the, it's really important. Um, one thing sometimes people say to me about my book that I don't like, although they mean it nicely, is they say, oh, I really like your book, I hope politicians read it. And I always... So to say to them, I always think of the thing that Noam Chomsky says about Henry Kissinger, which is people's, um, someone's talking to Chomsky about, you're great, you speak the truth to power. And Chomsky said, I don't want to speak the truth to power. Henry Kissinger knows the truth. He's just a psycho. He doesn't care. Um, And, you know, it's not our job to speak the truth to power, and it's not our job to speak the truth to politicians, I don't think. It's our job to create pressure on the politicians so they change. Ultimately, politicians are sitting there, and they're constantly making a cost-benefit analysis, which is, if I do this, what, what praise will I get and what shit will I get? And at the moment, if you take a stand on drug policy, and I urge any politician to do this, you're going to get a huge amount of shit, and not just from the Daily Mail and Rupert Murdoch, although they'll be in the front, uh, you know, the front of the lynch mob, but actually from a lot more perfectly nice people that we would all like. And at the other side of the equation, OK, so I'm going to get all that. Who's going to praise me? Almost no one. We, there's almost no movement. There's Stuart and this lovely woman over here, right? There's almost no movement in Scotland. So what we had to do is build up this side of the argument until it's louder than the other side. And if that sounds unrealistic, I'm gay, I'm 36 years old. When there was the first gay kiss on EastEnders when I was nine years old, and I remember it very clearly, the Sun headline the next day was it's East Benders. Front page, right? And pages of bile and calling for people to be fired. Now, if the most crazy UKIP person said that, they would have to stand down from UKIP, right? That's happened in a really short... My niece is here, she's you know, the age I was then. That's happened in the, the time from her being that age to me being my age, right? Nothing. The t- 2,000 years of gay people being persecuted. And it ended because people organized and they appealed to the decency of their fellow citizens and people opened their hearts and listened to them and this is exactly the same, right? If you're sceptical about it, you know, and now the sun is really pro-gay, and the Daily Mail holds it back, because they know that we all like Graham Norton, you know. Um, So, you know, know, ultimately, I think with these things, it's not about saying, the politicians aren't stupid, you're totally right, some of them are obviously, but not that, most of them aren't. It's not about them being thick or them even being evil. They are responding to the balance of forces within Britain at the moment on this issue. And we can totally change that balance of forces. In 19, you know, what year is Section 28, 1987? Yeah, 1987, Thatcher was responding to, you know, the balance of power on gay issues in Britain. You got a lot of applause for beating up the puftas, as they were called then, and a very small number of very brave people like Ken Livingstone and lots of wonderful gay people over Britain and the people who loved them were on the other side, but they were pretty small and they were pretty big. people change the balance of power. And now I'm guessing, you know, a lot of people here would be really proud that we live in a country with gay marriage. We can change this. This is, this is one issue where... There's some issues where I think we might not win it, some things I really care about. For example, global warming, which is slightly worrying because we do need a planet. Uh, but, you know, this is not one of them. This is right... Another thing that was really striking to me It's very hard to get people to defend the current system, prohibition. You will get people who say, well, the alternatives are even worse. But basically, whenever I've been doing TV and they want to find someone in Britain to be up against me, it's it's Peter Hitchens and no one else, who I actually really like. Um, But that's it, right? Um, He'll tell you that, you know, if you smoke cannabis once, you'll go mad and kill Lee Rigby. Um, So, you know, the other side is hollow. They're... The one thing you can say in defense of their policy, and I think it's important, is to say we have given it a fair shot, right? A hundred years, a trillion dollars, untold numbers of people who have died, and we can't even keep drugs out of our prisons where we've got a walled perimeter and we pay someone to walk around it the whole time. Mm-hmm. So we have, we have tried, and, you know, it, yeah. yeah. Hi i give shorter answers, I apologise. i I'm Prone to rambling. We've got time for another four minutes.
1: <laughs> I was just wondering from both of you, I think one of the arguments against legalisation of drugs, maybe from mm. the Daily Mail crew or, or whoever, is that mm. kind of nice middle-class kids, instead of just kind of going to the park and trying Bacardi and smoking and maybe having a joint, they might also go and take some heroin. <laughs> and I just wondered what, you, what your kind of argument against that is or what, what evidence there perhaps is in your book that that just doesn't happen.
0: Yeah, I think this is a crucial issue. My, as I said before, my nephew and my niece are both here. My book is actually dedicated to them. And I really strongly don't want them to use drugs. Um, it's a long ongoing... One of my nephews, one who's not here, uh, who's 15, keeps texting me saying, uh, Johan, it's going to be really embarrassing for you if I turn out to be a crack addict now, isn't it? But the way I would explain this is precisely because I don't want them to use drugs that I'm in favour of legalisation. And the best way to explain why is I went and interviewed a guy in New Jersey called Fred Martins, who was this very right-wing cop. He's retired now. And he had this epiphany one day. He was, in the early 70s, he was staking out a car park in in Wayne, New Jersey. He was staking out a dealer in a car park. He was in plain clothes. And a kid, like an 11 or 12-year-old, came up to him and said, Hey, mister, will you go into that liquor store and buy me some booze? I'm too young, they won't sell it to me. And Fred said, No, get out of here. And so the kid went up to the drug dealer and bought some drugs from him instead, because drug dealers don't check ID. And although Fred wouldn't put it in this fancier way, legalisation puts a regulatory barrier between kids and drugs that does not currently exist, right? um, No one in my nephew's school is selling Jack Daniels or Smirnoff or Heineken. Loads of kids are selling weed and pills, because we have a regulatory structure for alcohol that severely punishes people who sell to kids. Actually, I would increase the punishments but that's different. And we we don't have any regulatory structure for, alcohol, for, for other drugs. Um, there's lots of evidence that kids find it, lots of studies in the US, no one as far as I know has studied this in Britain but I'm sure it would be the same. Kids find it much easier to get hold of cannabis than to get hold of alcohol. And cannabis is very bad for developing adolescent brains. So I think in terms of kids, if your primary concern is protecting your kids then you should be strongly in favour of bankrupting the armed criminal gangs who currently supply drugs mm. and having them controlled by by doctors and pharmacists. And it's also important to say that doesn't mean legalisation doesn't mean, you know, everything should be the same. So for example, you got I don't know the rules in Scotland, but I'm guessing anyone here in this room could, if they really wanted to, own a dog, a monkey and a lion. But there's different rules, right? You go to a shop and buy a dog. If you wanted a monkey, I think you'd probably need a licence. And if you want to buy a lion, they're probably going to come and inspect your home. You can't just have it in your flat. Um, same should be true for, other, for drugs, right? So some drugs we would regulate and sell, like alcohol. I would actually tighten the rules around alcohol. I wouldn't allow discount pricing and all the terrible things we allow about that. Uh, there may be some other drugs. So, for example, party drugs, ecstasy, you might have licensed bars in the way we sell absinthe. So you can't just buy absinthe over-the-counter, I don't think, in Scotland, but you can... There are some licensed bars. You might have that model. Um, For heroin, obviously, we'd have the Swiss model where it'd be prescribed to addicts. Um, We'd have safe consumption rooms, like in Vancouver, where it works so well. It's an interesting thing, because I think when... This isn't like... There's one way this isn't like the gay debate, which is when I argue with um, people who don't believe in the equality of gay people, I do my best to persuade them, but ultimately, we just fundamentally disagree, right? This actually isn't like that. Actually, when I speak to people who are in favour of drug prohibition, and I talk to them about why, generally they say, I don't want more people to use drugs, I don't want people to become addicted, and I don't want kids to use drugs. I agree with them 100%. The only debate is about how do we get there. And we've got to look at the places that have tried different approaches, and the way we've tried has failed, and there are places that have succeeded where, they, where they've done the different, different approach. We've got time for one more question, so i hand up at the back, up here. I saw a
1: hand. Maybe I hallucinated.
0: <laughs> You've you kind of answered it in what you just said, but um, I would have thought that the thing to do, starting from where you're starting, is to articulate very clearly the fears behind the resistance to legalisation. I think I'm pretty much with you on that. I think legalisation would be a great idea. I don't, for libertarian reasons as so much as anything, I don't really believe the government yeah. is there to organise our lives for us. Um, in the the tight, moralistic way that people seem to think nowadays about all sorts of things. But I just wondered if you could say a bit more about the fears that lie behind the resistance to the policy that you're advocating. I think that's a really good point. I've been looking a lot lately at how people change their minds. And you might know I used to be a newspaper columnist and for a long time I used to argue with people, right? So I'd write these kind of long arguments. And when I stopped doing it, partly I just thought did I ever change anyone's mind by doing that, right? Like, I think I told them sometimes things they didn't already know. But did I ever actually change their mind? Probably not. And I was thinking about this, there's lots of evidence about this, that actually, the, you don't change, you almost never change people's minds by telling them they're wrong, <laughs> stridently, or by telling them facts. You do it through stories and by acknowledging their fears, and if their fears are legitimate, which in this case they are, it's, not, it's slightly harder with a homophobe, you know, because... I'm not going to come and take your, you know, I don't know, your wife from you or whatever they think. don't never quite understand how they think I'm going to break up their marriage. But anyway, the, um, you know, that's a bit harder to deal with. But but with this, where the fears are legitimate, I think you're right. Generally what I do, I think there's two things in what you said. One is, um, so there's partly the libertarian argument you said about it's not the government's job to tell people what to do. I feel a bit conflicted about this. I'm broadly sympathetic to that point of view. But it's very interesting, if you look at the places where they succeeded in getting people to change their minds, that argument always fails really badly. I don't quite know why. Compassion for addicts you can get some traction for. The Swiss thing about order, bankrupt the criminal gangs, you can get a load of traction from that, people love that. Um, The liberty, liberty stuff people really don't like. Um, I'm not quite sure either. So they didn't... They just stopped using it in the Colorado and Washington campaigns because people hated it. Just one last thing is that when I try to change with violence, what I do is I tell them stories about people who used to believe what they believe. So I tell the story in my book of an amazing cop in Baltimore called Lee Maddox, Maryland and Baltimore, who I got to know very well, who could not have been a stronger believer in the war on drugs and went through this horrific experience, series of experiences, and now works trying to get the criminal records of the kind of people she arrested, quashed, because she had a kind of revelation about it. And that's... So I tell them about people who used to totally legitimately believe what they used to believe for very good reasons and then had an experience that showed them it was, it was wrong.
1: Before we kind of finish this up in one minute's time, I'll just something I'll say. Jan brought up the, the idea, the name of Bud Osborne. Just one character in many, many that you've researched and talked to. Bud Osborne, he sticks in my mind. It was a chapter in the book which... Uh, it brought me almost to tears at the end of it. And the reasons for this was because I could associate with this guy, I felt for him, but also I felt I knew something about his backstory and his tale. He was into poetry. He was into Baudelaire. And he he looked at the poetry of Baudelaire and he understood they were in anguish and pain and they were expressing themselves. And the poetry was so important to Baudelaire and and the French writers that he enjoyed. And he wrote poetry himself. And he wanted a, a poem to be told. And I just felt, I could associate with this because you're a good storyteller. And this book has got good stories in it, chasing, chasing the scream. Uh, some of these stories will haunt you and you'll remember them for a long time. But to me, if there was a rationality in this, this would be a game changer. As Jan said, it's not about rationality. It's, it's about pressure. So I'm going to bring this an end. Oh, can after I say the one thing? Just yes quickly, sir, which is
0: that I keep urging, I'm urging Kevin to write a book about the Scottish drug war, which I think is really fascinating. So I urge you all to mob him at the end and tell him you want that book. And <laughs> also speak to Stuart about if you mm-hmm. work, if you mm-hmm. care about this issue, mm-hmm. you absolutely have it in your power to change this. Mm-hmm. Bud was a homeless street addict, right? Mm-hmm. He didn't sit there and say, oh, this is such a big thing, it's been going on for a long time. He didn't sit there and say, what can I do? Mm-hmm. He didn't sit there and wait for a politician to change their minds. He started where he stood. You mm-hmm. can do the same. Talk to Stuart. Johan's going to be signing this
1: in the tent next door, so I hope you buy a copy. But in the meantime, put your hands together for appreciation for Johan you. heart.
0: Thanks, Kevin.